Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, March 28th. It was a busy Monday at the 2023 Miami Open. Multiple storylines emerging from the day's play. And while the women's singles draw is a day ahead of the men's action, the storyline I want to lead today's show with is the fact that we finally had some real movement in Miami. Multiple guys I wouldn't consider tier one contenders for the men's singles title, but certainly players you'd put in that tier two conversation in Felix Ogier, Aliasim, Hubi Hercats, and Francis Tiafo, They were all knocked out in round three on Monday, each of them falling in fairly definitive straight set matches as well. Now, on today's show, I want to give a ton of credit to their opponents. Adrian Manorino was fantastic in the biggest moments of his 6-6 six and six win over Hubi Hercats. I thought Francisco Osirundolo executed an exceptional game plan against Felix Ogier, Aliasim, and we got to talk about Sarundalo, right? He's defending semifinal points. He's into round four once again, comes up with the goods with a top 10 win over Felix. Let's remind everyone, or I want to remind everyone here on today's show, what makes Francisco Sarundalo capable of producing these sorts of results. And then, I mean, of course, you got to give credit to the relentless aggression of Lorenzo Sinego, who we've seen play top 25 level tennis before. He's dealt with a lot of injuries of late. He looks healthy. He played excellent in those conditions in Miami. I want to talk about how he was able to assert himself against Tiafo. Tumultuous day. That was the theme on the men's single side of things. That's why I want to lead the show with those storylines because, to be quite frank, while we had plenty of intriguing and really good tennis on the women's side, I thought the women's matches were probably better. Not probably. They were better on average than the men's matches we saw on Monday. And that makes sense. They were round of 16 matches. You saw all eight round of 16 battles on the women's side of things in Miami unfold. Look, they were all really good. But a lot of the results were expected, right? I got to talk Sabalenka. I mean, oh my God. I, Barb, I don't want to accuse Barbara Krejcikova of quitting because Krejcikova doesn't quit in matches. She was resigned to losing, though. You could tell whether it was the double fault to end the first set, the, you know, again, carelessness midway through the second. She was just overwhelmed by the excellence of Arena Sabalenka. And, I mean, this mini-break podcast was almost built on a foundation of building up Sabalenka's credibility. And I won't lie. I was So I was sitting on the bike. Here's a quick tangent for all of you longtime listeners who know the – I don't want to say the stock. Uh, yeah, the stock we bought in Arena Sabalenka early on here on the Mini Break Podcast because the athleticism, the power has been evident for the duration of her time playing tour-level matches. I was sitting on the bike watching tennis, doing what I do to prepare in the lab, as I like to call it, preparing for this show. And I was thinking of uh, – I was watching Sabalenka Krejcikova last night. And there's spoiler alert. I'm recording this early on Monday. And uh, on Tuesday, excuse me, and I was enjoying Sabalenka's breathtaking tennis. I was enjoying watching Twitter's reaction to Sabalenka's breathtaking tennis. The thing that 
I don't know if it made me sad, but what I became resigned to is I don't think Sabalenka is going to be our secret anymore here on the Mini Break Podcast, folks. And obviously her winning her first slam title at the Australian Open, that was the exclamation point on that statement of it's no longer a secret how good she is. But she really is just mainstream excellent now. And I don't know if that makes me less willing to cut, not less willing, but less eager to ring her praises because now she's in the category where everyone's going to be ringing her praises. I don't need to convince any of you of how excellent she is anymore. We all see that match in, match out. That's what she was against Krejcikova. Wow, that tangent turned into an early Sabalenka rant. I apologize. I, I didn't expect that to go there, but there you go. We got that out of the way. She's just mainstream excellent now. She gave Krejcikova the business yesterday. And even on a day where Rabakina down a break, 4-3, and then runs, you know, the table against Elisa Mertens the rest of the way. She won, you know, obviously Rabakina got her at Indian Wells. I just think Sabalenka has to be your favorite moving forward after the level we saw from her against Krejcikova yesterday, regardless of what we saw from Rabakina, who again played really good tennis. Jessica Pagula, 5-2 down in the second set, played really good tennis. Potapova continues to play excellent. I'll get into all of that here on today's show, but... Yeah, I mean, that's why I want to lead with the men's storylines, because the women's storylines have been fairly consistent over the past three months, which has been a luxury. As everyone says, we finally have some stability at the top of the WTA rankings. Take your shot every time you hear that now moving forward. That turns into maybe my favorite drinking game is, you know, people don't talk enough about how things have gotten stable at the top of the WTA tour. We really haven't had that for a while. You don't need to send that tweet for clout. Everyone knows it at this point, but it was a stable day. Tumultuous for the men, stable for the women. We'll get into everything that happened on Monday here on today's show. Of course, shout out to all of you listeners for tolerating all of my nonsense day in, day out tangents like we heard there in our introduction. I appreciate all of you who take joy in our joy here at Cracked Rackets of everything that happens in the tennis world. And of course, we're covering it all across every level, college, challengers, juniors, you name it, we've got it for you. Head on over to our website, crackedrackets.com, to see it all. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review, not just this podcast to let us know what you think, what you want to hear more of, but of course, we want to hear your thoughts on the Great Shot podcast, our Cracked Interviews podcast feed, where we were able to sit down with so many great players last week in Phoenix, you name it. You know, again, we try to produce it here at Cracked Rackets, but we want to hear what you want more of. So again, whether it be in the Apple podcast feeds, we had a lot of fun with Austin, Texas, Dave a couple of weeks ago. I want to have fun with more of you listeners moving forward. So feel free to throw a comment there. Feel free to throw us questions on Twitter, Instagram, at Cracked Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin. If you want to reach me directly, always appreciate the chance to get to speak with all of you. So thank you to all of you who make these podcasts such a joy to record day in, day out. Of course, a massive thank you to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast day in, day out. It allows us to do this here at Cracked Rackets to ensure you have all the information you need so that you are the most well-informed, best-educated tennis fans in the business. Of course, you can also be the best dressed and equipped as well by turning to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com for all of the latest and greatest equipment at the best prices. Use our promo code CR15 at checkout to make sure they know we sent you there with all of that said, let's get into a busy Monday in Miami. Again, I want to start with those upsets on the men's side because I certainly expected these to be close matches. I did not expect 
each of Hercots, Felix, and Tiafo to lose in straight sets. And I want to start with the Hercots match in particular because while, you know, again, Hoopy Hercots, particularly his last three, you know, he made what the final in Canada where he lost to Pablo Carreño Busta, loses early to Isner in Cincinnati, loses early at Indian Wells as well, uh, gets knocked out. Who did who beat Hooper? who be early it was uh oh Tommy Paul in the round of 32 I guess that's not getting knocked out early but round of 32 by who standards at hardcourt masters event he's one of the five winningest players at hardcourt masters since the start of 2021 he, he had struggled over his past two so it's not completely unexpected and I mean look this was a match that featured two breaks of serve this was a match that went Seven six seven six, and in that sort of format, right? You'd think a guy like Hubie Hercots, who you know by hold percentage, Hercots number three right now amongst top fifty players on the ATP tour, has held eighty nine point three percent of the time over his last fifty two weeks. He's played fifty five tiebreakers over his last fifty two weeks as well in his past sixty three matches. Surprisingly, twenty eight and twenty seven in those breakers over his last 52 weeks. And I think part of that comes down to the fact that foundationally, and we've talked about this before, so I apologize for beating the, uh, you know, whatever the expression is for beating this horse or beating whatever, whatever it is um, for repeating myself, you can attack his forehand in the biggest moments. And Manorino did such a good job of attacking his forehand in a variety of ways. It wasn't necessarily always serving through the forehand, although, of course, Manorino did that plenty. And you look for Adrian Manorino during the match. He only made 55% of his first serves, yet he won 71% of those first serve points, 62, uh, 63%, excuse me, if you want to round up, of his second serve points. It wasn't necessarily that he was always surfing through the forehand and just generating easy forehand errors from her cuts. No, it was Manorino's willingness to play two, three balls through that Hercot's backhand to open up the forehand wing to attack for himself. And, you know, you look for Hubie in his career at tour level, you'd expect, you know, a guy with his backhand to have a bunch of success against lefties, right? And he was 7-0 and against lefties coming into this matchup against in his last 52 weeks. And yet, Manorino did seem particularly well-suited to play for his forehand through the Hercots backhand because, you know, again— I think Hoopy Hercots, why his backhand has so much success against lefties is because if you play with heavy topspin up to, uh, as a lefty into his backhand, now you're hitting a ball at his shoulder height. Now he gets to hit down and drive through his backhand that much more, which is the advantage you have when you have a good two-handed backhand and you're taller than your opponent and, they, or, and you're a tall player and they hit a heavy ball right into your strike zone. That's not what Manorino does. His drive is low. It's slow. It kept Hubie low to the ground. He didn't have those obvious opportunities to spring his momentum forward into the court other than when he was landing first serves, which, by the way, Hubie did plenty of in this match. And you look for Hubie, he generated six break points for himself. He only faced four break points for himself. And, you know, again, the biggest difference in this match was the execution on the second serve. There were times when A. Adrian Manorino was bailed out by a missed Hubie Hurricane's forehand return. He missed two of them in the second set breaker, which he got bageled in. You know, the other instances were that, again, Manorino had success 
with non-clear-cut patterns, you know, playing a couple of backhands down the line to get Hoopy pinned on that ad side corner so that he could press and attack the on-the-run Hurkacz forehand, which is really when that forehand starts to spray, or B, when Hurkacz turns to slice that forehand, and that's when Manorino got a short ball. He did a really good job of attacking those uh, short balls. Again, the problem is there's just a structural hole for Hoopy Hurkacz. I guess that's what this upset is indicative of. And if you can execute through that game plan well enough, if you can attack his forehand well enough to keep pace, because Hoobie with his serve, with how well he moves forward, obviously he's going to have success holding. But what the tiebreak record reveals is if you can get him to that breaker, there is a structural weakness for you to attack. And if you can execute it well enough through that forehand wing, and on the right day, given the parity right now at the top of men's tennis, you know, again, there are enough players who can execute on the right day through that Hoopy Hercot's forehand. That's the issue. It's gotten a lot better. And again, he imposes his will extraordinarily well. He got broken once in this match. He absolutely could have won it. You got to give credit to Adrian Manorino, though, coming through in the clutch. Again, just executed so well down the home stretch. It's a disappointing loss for Hoopy, who, you know, again, will hold that number 11 right now in the live rankings. It's a really good run for Adrian Manorino. 33 and 31 overall in his last 52 weeks. 12 and 8, though to start 2023, won a couple of matches at Indian Wells, beating team in Musetti. Good matchup for him, obviously, on those hard courts, but still slow, high-bouncing hard courts. Indian Wells never going to be Manorino's friend. That's two good wins there. Played uh, Yannick Center really close, and now wins over Shelton, Shang, Hercots to get to the round of 16, has a very winnable match against the qualifier, Chris Eubanks, who we're going to talk about in a second, I promise. I'm well aware of his top 100 debut, but again, 12-8 and eight overall, made a quarterfinal in Dallas, quarterfinal in Delray Beach, third round at Indian Wells, now gets three wins here into the round of 16 in Miami. Adrian Manorino with this run back into the top 50, up to number 49 in the live rankings. 34 years old. In the top 50, let's see, he's younger than John Isner, Richard Gasquet, Roberto Bautista Agud is a few months older than him, Chilich is a few months younger, uh, Rafa's obviously a little bit older, and Djokovic is a little bit older. He's six old, this guy in the top 50. That's a veteran. Adrian Manorino, your definition of a veteran right now. I mean... Credit to him. Holden Strong gets to play whatever schedule he wants with that top 50 ranking, making a good living still, playing the slams, playing the Masters events. He's going to net over 500000 this year. It's good clean living for Adrian Manorino. Fourth round. Uh, again, got to respect the vets. We don't do enough of that here at Cracker Rackets. I respect the performance. Disappointing, certainly, for Hercots. You felt like the draw perhaps had opened up for him, particularly uh, after he got through that really tricky match with Kokonakis, but maybe used all the magic there. Six and six win for Manorino to knock out Hoopy Hercots. You also had a really good win from Francisco Sarundolo, who I think is whom we have to talk about next. Sarundolo, two and five over Felix. Faced just two break points in the match. And while he was broken from a set and a break up in set number two, he just had so, you know, he was pressuring Felix from the moment the match started. And, you know, these are two guys very similar in the sense that both want to drive through their backhands. Both want to use that as a placeholder to find the forehand, which they both finish so well with. Sarandolo played Felix even forehand to forehand. He was just better 
then Felix in the backhand to backhand exchanges. It was so difficult for Felix to generate any easy opportunities to find ad side forehands because Sarundalo just played with consistent depth. And, you know, again, has that ability to match Felix pace for pace on the forehand wing, take time away from Felix on that forehand side so he isn't as able to dictate with it definitively. Now, look, again, Felix did not serve particularly well in this match. You look overall at the number, Felix made just 54% of his first serves. He's been, you know, over 60, or his career average, 63.6%. He has not served well throughout the course of this sunshine swing. When he landed the first serve, he dominated. The biggest difference was Felix was leaving his second serve short. Sarundalo pounced on every second serve opportunity. Felix won just 28.6% of his second serve points. And you continue, uh, continue excuse me, to see this theme in the matches where Felix falls short. And look, it's not a bad sunshine swing, by the way, for Felix. Quarterfinals in Dean Wells. You know, again, played got a, got a win over Sarundalo in their matchup there. Beats Tommy Paul down after being down match points uh, to reach that quarterfinal. Played Alcaraz really tight in their quarterfinal match. There are times when Felix pushed on his back foot. His backhand begins to spray on him. You know, again, he can't dig himself out of that corner. There is no plan B. His plan A is as good as anyone's plan A. When he's on his front foot, his serve, his forehand, they're going to overwhelm you. Sarundalo is a good enough athlete. He did well enough absorbing that pace for Felix, particularly, again, the heavy pace into that inside out into that Sarundalo backhand. He kind of loved it to hit through it that much easier. And, you know, again, used Felix's topspin to amplify his own drive. Sarundalo found the backhand corner. It was, it was the same story for Felix. I think that's the most concerning part coming out of this Felix loss is that much like with Hercots, the blueprint for beating Felix, I mean, if I can see it, I'm sure many of you tennis fans listening in today can see it as well. But, man, credit to Sarundalo. His forehand, I mean, I said it. He played Felix even, forehand to forehand. His forehand is a missile. And, you know, the depth he's able to generate, uh, not just on that wing, but on his backhand wing as well. He is just a springy athlete. And he's a bit robotic. There's no doubt about it. I don't think... You know, again, I think he's decent at improvising, but it's the same improvisation. You know what, like he's good in his corners, but you know he's going to try and hit his way through those corners. It's not always the short angles that he wants to look. He wants to bash the forehand. He wants to be banging inside out, inside out, inside in. The patterns, I suppose, are a bit predictable. But when Sarundalo is executing them effectively as he did against Felix, I mean, you know, again, he faced two break points throughout the course of the match. He won 73% of his first serve points. He dominated with his first forehand. Um, and he needed this run. You look for Sarandolo, 25 and 27 overall over his last 52 weeks. Obviously, he's defending semifinal points in Miami. Yet by getting to the round of 16, he salvages his rankings. He's back up. Uh, here is Sarandolo to number uh, 35 overall in the live rankings with which with the advantageous clay court uh, portion of his season coming up, I mean, that's the big deal, you know, for Sarundalo, who, by the way, didn't have the best clay court season last year, went and played Rome, Madrid, qualifying, made it to their own main draw, but lost first round, won one match in Lyon, lost first round to Dan Evans, straight sets at Roland Garros, yet, of course, you look for 
Sarundalo in his career. The majority of his matches have come on clay. You look for him at the challenger level. He's 70 and 32 overall at the challenger level on clay, has won five different clay court challenger titles. You look for him, ATP success on clay, 29 and 22 overall. He's made finals in Buenos Aires, in uh, Bostad, where he won the title, of course, last year. That's the big thing he's got to defend over the summer as well. I say all these things just to keep in mind, Sarandolo's still 24 years old, doesn't turn 25 till the middle of August. You know, a guy who's figuring things out, I would say still, of what he wants, you know, outside of banging the first forehand, constructing points. I don't think, I, I mentioned he's robotic, and yet he, it's not as though he gets to those patterns in set ways on each and every point. It's just so clear what Sarandolo wants to be doing, which is banging forehands, particularly from that ad side of the court and just working you around from there. And yet I don't know what the definitive pattern is for Francisco Sarandolo. I don't think he has a defining serve quite yet. I'm not sure, you know, again, two balls cross one line or two backhands cross one drop shot, one slice, whatever it is. I don't think he has all of his patterns defined yet. I feel like he's still a little bit raw, and the reason I bring that up, for the record, Sarandolo, who spent a little time at South Carolina, one of 15 players right now in the ATP Top 100 Live Singles Rankings with college tennis ties, I just feel like there's still a little more there. I'm keeping my eye on Sarandolo. I don't know why he can't be in this Top 35 mix for a while now, 24 years old, really good win over Felix. Obviously, you look for Felix again coming off of the quarterfinal at Indian Wells, given the success he had had at Miami, you would have hoped for a victory there, uh, particularly given he had beaten Sarandolo the event prior, but it's really hard to beat guys two weeks in a row. And again, Sarandolo just executed extraordinarily well from start to finish in this match. So credit to uh, Sarandolo on the victory. He advances to round number four. We're now a date with Lorenzo Sinego awaits. And you look for Sinego, the 27-year-old from Italy, now back up in the live rankings to number 47 after he knocks off Francis Tiafo three and four. I talked about relentless aggression in the intro. We're going to keep this one short and sweet. Again, storybook. How do you beat Francis Tiafa? You need a weapon to attack his forehand with. If you can do that particularly, that return of serve on the forehand side, because as much better as it has gotten, that backswing is still big. The grip is still a bit extreme. If you have a weapon, you can overwhelm Francis with, and you can execute that consistently enough to you know maintain that pressure from start to finish. You're going to have a shot at that. And that's really, it's so much easier said than done. But I'll tell you what, last night, Lorenzo Sinego was able to execute it. Won 91% of his first serve points, made 76% of his first serves, won 82% of his second serve points, 10 plus aces, didn't face a break point, three and four in an hour, 13 minutes. And look, Francis served fine. In, you know, in this match, he had one blip early in the first set, one blip early in the second set. This was the only, two, you know, he faced three break points in the match. Now, again, the biggest difference, Sinego went guns blazing on the second serve return, went after every ball with his forehand and would rather have missed long than allowed the point to be started at neutral and the pace with Sinego played with, particularly he either played down the center at the feet of Tiafo, so Tiafo would have to pop up the first ball, or he played through that Tiafo forehand. It was 
beautifully executed. And look, when Sanego is healthy, when he's execu- when he's able to move around the ball comfortably, find his forehand, which he's able to do a little bit easier on this grittier, slower hardcourt in Miami, this is the level of tennis he's capable of playing. It's a massive result for Lorenzo Sinego, who's now 30-28 and 28 overall in his last 52 weeks. Hadn't earned three wins at a tournament since Mets in September. And, you know, again, in his last 52 weeks, this is just the second time he's won three-plus matches at a single event. He's also got to look at that Sarundlo draw and say, I can absolutely win that match. And, you know, again, for Sinego, wins over team. Evans Tiafo here in Miami. It's a really good run to get him back inside the top 50. And you know, again, you look for him overall against top 20 players, five and 10 uh, against the top 20s. Or in two uh, this year, he's what is he here in 2023? He's two and five against top 20 players. You look for his career now, 10 and 18. But hey, man, since the since the uh, start of September last year, five and five against top 20 opponents. Wins over Chapo, Tiafo twice, Hercots, Felix. And again, his service forehand is a particularly bad matchup for Francis. I think we saw that uh, on display last night. Again, you look for Sinego, Sarundolo, two guys with a massive opportunity. Get to a quarterfinal in Miami, cement your spot in the top 50, top 35 if you're Sarundolo, uh, heading into a very, you know, heading into a changing of the seasons. Obviously, a surface both guys have had plenty of success on in their careers. You know, those were the three definitive upsets on the day. Now, to rapid fire through the rest of the men's results, you got to give a shout out to two other unseated players who now find themselves in the round of 16. First and foremost, to our guy, Chris Eubanks, who we've been fortunate enough to spend some time with here at Cracked Rackets, and who is maybe number one in the hearts of all t- of tennis Twitter on the men's side. I mean, no one's going to say a bad word about Chris Eubanks. The 26 year old is kind, compassionate, thoughtful funny, engaging, and a hell of a tennis player. And that probably should have been the first thing I say. And look, when you're 6'7", you have his serve, you have the weapons he can generate, you're as fluid of a mover as Chris Eubanks is. I mean, since his time at Georgia Tech, go listen to our very, we did a next-gen ATP American series. That was one of our opening bits here at Crack Rackets back in the fall of 2017. And we did a full podcast on Chris Eubanks, who, again, Coming out of college, right away through his college career, just and uh, in his pro career, the weapons were so evident. You can't fake the sort of pace he's able to generate, the ease with which he finds his serve. And, you know, Eubanks now 45 and 26 over his last 52 weeks. He's held serve 86.8% of the time. Now, most of that has been at the challenger level, but if you don't adjust for level of competition, that's top 10 number on the ATP tour. And, you know, you look for Eubanks, 13.5 ace percentage. Again, top 10 number on the ATP tour. He's able to generate such free, uh, so many free points for himself. Faced one break point yesterday against Gregoire Barre. And, you know, you look for Eubanks, who's gotten wins over Kudla, Chorich, Barre here in Miami. It's the first time in his career he's won three, event, uh, three matches at a single ATP event. And, you know, again, it's just so great to see him build off of the momentum we saw at the end of last season, that indoor hardcourt stretch, right? He loses in back-to-back challenger finals to Ben Shelton, makes the semifinals in Champaign, ultimately gets that Australian Open wild card. So now he's able to go down to Auckland before the Aussie Open, get through qualifying, get a, win a match there indoors, and you know, win a match at the Australian Open, qualify in Delray Beach, now qualify and get three wins his first round of 16 
at a Masters in the top 1,000. You have the sort of six-month run that Chris Eubanks has had. That's how you make your top 100 debut. And Chris Eubanks now becomes the 15th player with college tennis ties to break into the top 100 of the ATP Live singles rankings up to number 98 with his win over Beret. Look, you know what you're going to see with Chris Eubanks. It's going to be big first serves. It's going to be big first forehands. He's going to look to move forward. He drives through his backhand far more comfortably than he used to. But again, he's going to be looking to dominate on his terms. He's going to be looking to play a bunch of, you know, get to a minimum of a breaker. Although, again, he he does a really good job of keeping his forehand, getting and extending out on his forehand. I think playing that ball fine as a rally ball it is. You know, again, I think he's a little bit more fluid moving in and out of the backhand corner, but he's much more dangerous on that forehand wing, and the weapons are just top 100 good. So credit to Chris Eubanks, top 100. Now, what does he do? Again, uh, go play the clay courts in Europe, play qualifying there. Does he stay here, play Sarasota, play, you know, Tallahassee, play Rome, try to get that French Open wild card guarantee? Although right now in his own live ranking, he'll get in. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating. You look for Chris Eubank in his career on the clay courts. He went 1-2 and two last season overall. He's only played 14 matches on clay. Since the start of 2020, he's played a grand total of six matches on clay courts. Two and four overall in those six for what it's worth. Most of them coming in French Open qualifying. Yeah, he's got he's to work on the clay courts. It's going to be fascinating. And again, he's put himself in a position where you have a choice. Do you want to go play Masters qualifying and go play the red clay, which, again, he hasn't had a ton of success on. He probably stays here and plays Houston right, uh, right after this Miami run because now you're getting in with your ranking. Huh. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I'm fascinated to see what Chris Eubanks does moving forward. But again, the weapons are real. It'll be fascinating to see how they translate across. And then shout out to Quentin Halise, 26-year-old, used to be a top junior in the world. Took him a while to break through. But again, last season, I believe it was, he made 11 different quarterfinals at the challenger level. He went 57-26 and 26 overall last season. Yeah, 11 different challenger quarterfinals, seven different challenger challenger finals three different challenger titles you look at his start to this season 13 and 11 he made quarterfinals in Auckland in Montpellier semifinals of the Phoenix Challenger now wins three matches here wins over Martinez Demon Hour then six and three yesterday over Mackie McDonald uh, to reach the round of 16 where now he'll have the ultimate test of course Daniil Medvedev who advances via a withdrawal look the serve the forehand for Halise they're just real like and his ability to dictate with it, it reminds me a little of Hatchinov, but smaller. Is he a smaller Hatchinov? Is that a fair comparison? I think it kind of is. I mean, it's a little in the Tsitsipas serve forehand model, backhand more placeholder. Yes, there's slicey plays with it, but it's not elite depth. Yeah, I would say it's in that Tsitsipas Hatchinov model of serve, forehand are the dominating strokes. I mean, not quite Berrettini with the overwhelming power, but I really like how he gets outside the ball on his forehand wing in particular. I also really like how Halise moves. I think he's sneaky good athlete, and again, 26 years old now, certainly at in his prime athletically. I expect him to stick in the top 50. 
Uh, again, I, if you look for Quentin Halise into the round of 16 in Miami for the first time in his career, has those 11 challenger quarterfinals to defend all spread out throughout the course of this season. But you look for Halise now with this result. He's currently sitting at number 80 in the live rankings. And again, just with so many points to defend, this is a nice cash for him to have with more challengers to come. Uh, and now he's going to get to replace those with ATP level points. And again, you win one match at an ATP event now you've protected two challenger quarterfinals and you're doing just fine so a big week for Quinton Halise I'll tell you what if he can knock off Daniil Medvedev he will jump all the way back up in the live rankings to number 66 and again now you're feeling very good going into that clay court portion of the season other guys I didn't talk about just to wrap up this men's recap because I think we spent enough time there again a lot of seeds a lot of movement knocked out Medvedev gets through with the withdrawals. Mulchan, unfortunately, forced to pull out of his matchup. You had Karen Hatchnov. I said it on yesterday's show. Yuri Lachetchka had all the momentum. So, of course, Hatchnov, a 2-4 and four win. He's just a remarkable athlete. It's the strength. He had the strength, the physicality to withstand that first serve, first forehand. And then he had some weapons of his own to dish right back at Lachetchka, who just couldn't quite dig out of his backhand corner well enough in that match. And then... You know, it was a one-armed Stefano Tsitsipas who really could not hit his backhand at all. And yet, once again, his serve, his forehand, I mean, when he executes them well, he dominates with them. You look for Stefano Tsitsipas, who yesterday faced four break points. He fought three of them off. You know, again, I believe he had 11 aces on the day. When he finds first, he was swinging through his forehand so effortlessly. And it was so interesting, right, because the one break of serve he gets in the first set— you know, uh, he connects on an inside-out backhand return, and then Garin mistakenly hits a second serve at the body, which Tsitsipas is able to run around, connect with a forehand, and, you know, win that point aggressively. It, it just happened so quickly, right? And then in the third set for Tsitsipas, same thing. You know, Garin hangs a second serve to the Tsitsipas forehand on break point. He, you know, Tsitsipas is able to swing through it pretty comfortably and then, you know, get that ball to the Garin backhand. Garin misses the the uh, return of, uh, excuse me, the approach shot into the net. And there you go. It was, again, one, you're really just two blinks from Christian Garin, who I have to say kind of gave this match away, particularly given, again, how much Stefano Tsitsipas was struggling on his backhand wing. And yet you got to give a lot of credit to Tsitsipas, who when he did find serves and forehands, he executed them as he typically does. It's the equalizer, what keeps Tsitsipas in every match. But, you know, again, do I expect Tsitsipas to win this event in Miami? No. If I, In fact, I think if he beats Hatchinov in the round of 16, that should be considered a shock. And just quickly to go through those matchups, I talked about the top half yesterday, how exciting it is. But Manorino-Eubanks, Manorino, a 67.4% favorite. Medvedev, a 90.9% favorite against Halise. Sonego, 57% favorite against Sarundalo. That's interesting. And then Tsitsipas, 68.7% favorite. But I think anyone with eyes would disagree with that assessment. That's where things stand as we approach the round of 16 on the men's side. Of course, Alcaraz, Medvedev, your two favorites still, according to Tennis Abstract. Let's move over to the women's side of things now, though, as we are ready for the quarterfinal round of play now, or I should say the quarterfinal field is now set. Again, 
you didn't have any three-set matches on Monday. Everything was fairly straightforward. And let's just rapid-fire through all of these results here. We'll start with Arena Sabalenka. Faced one break point. She fought it off. Won 87.9% of her first serve points. Hit, you know, 10-plus aces in her victory over Krejcikova 3-2 and two yesterday, you know. Or what was it? Eight aces, excuse me, in her matchup yesterday against Krejcikova. Only one double fault. I mean, again, the match was close for like the first 10 minutes. Krejcikova did a great job taking the ball early on the rise, attacking that Sabalenka forehand with depth. And then Sabalenka found her groove, and she made 70% of her first serve points, um, of her first serves. You're not beating her on a day that happens because of how dominant she is with her first ground stroke, how well she hits her forehand at shoulder height now, how well she moves around the court. I mean, again, I already did a Sabalenka rant on this show, so I'm not going to do another one. But you look for Rina Sabalenka now here, 47-17 and 17 over her last 52 weeks, 20-2 and two stretch to start here in 2023. And let's be clear, of those 20 victories, seven of them have been against top 20 opponents. You look for her over her last 52 weeks now, she's got 14 top 20 victories. That trails just Rabakana and Sviantek. Uh, you know, again, Sviantek's got 20, Rabakana now 15, Sabalenka's got 14. There's your argument for a big three, another stat you can throw into that discussion. I mean, again, Krejcikova... There was nothing she could do. Like Sabalenka, who of course has always had that power on the serve. It's how well she's returning serve right now as well. It's just a joke. You look for Rina Sabalenka here in 2023. Not only is she holding serve 86.8% of the time, which by the way would be a single season record on the WTA Tour. She's breaking serve 40.1% of the time. She's top five in both hold and break percentage. Again, it's it's Iga-esque, but instead of the elite of the elite, Break percentage, it's the elite of the elite hold percentage. It's the power tennis version of the, you know, of just elite dominant tier one tennis. She blitzed Krejcikova. Watch the highlights for yourself. There was nothing Krejcikova could do on the day because it was just one of those days at the office for Arena Sabalenka. And I thought that was the big test because now, you know, again, her side of the draw, dare I say, it's opened, right? Instead of you know, a Caroline Garcia next who was the seed in her section. She even had Belinda Bencic, right, in her section. No, instead of those two, it's Serana Kirstea who she's going to face. And Kirstea, pseudo upset of the day, 6-4 and four win over Marketa Vondrusova. Kirstea just moves well. Sneaky, powerful in the outer thirds. She could tolerate all the slices, all the drop shots. She is fluid enough as a north-south mover. And, you know, again... You need pace to disrupt the rhythm of Serana Kirstea. You can't give her a rhythm ball, which, yes, Von Drusseva throws different angles at you, but Von Drusseva gives you time. And Kirstea is the sort of fluid enough athlete to have taken advantage of all of that time. She served extraordinarily well, only broken once on the day. It's a really good 6-4 and four win. I thought a really fun matchup, a tightly contested athletic battle. Not the overwhelming power tennis we see so much of, but, again, Sabalenka... 82.4% favorite against Kirstea. She's now, you know, the gap between her and Rabakina has narrowed even further. Rabakina, 32.6% favorite to capture the title. Sabalenka, 319 now. So again, with Krejcikova out of the way, Sabalenka gets a bump. Speaking of Rabakina, down a break, 4-3 to Elisa Mertens in the first set. She hit the gas pedal from there and look Mertens played breathtaking tennis the first seven games was taking every forehand on the rise two balls cross one ball line 
you know, again, any time Rabakina opened up an angle for her and was the first to go cross court, you know, Mertens beat Rabakina to the spot, attacked the open space. But then Rabakina found her down the line backhand. And then things were equalized. And then Rabakina cruised from there. Rabakina straight set winner over Elisa Mertens. She's now going to face Martina Trevisan, who, oh my God, like her ability to take that ball on the rise because Trevisan's what, like 5'3", five, 5'4", five, and Ostapenko plays with such great pace and depth. And, you know, every ball was right on the knees of Martina Trevisan right away. And Trevisan just sort of short hops it, redirects it. She beats Ostapenko. She anticipated so well and where Ostapenko was planning to attack. And even if it was just a slice, every ball was coming back at least two extra times. And Trevisan was putting just enough on it to make Ostapenko at least uncomfortable in her response. Again, Trevisan was really good. She played. That's the best tennis I've ever seen Martina Trevisan play. And she's into the quarterfinals of a Masters, uh, or excuse me, a 1,000 level event, either the first or second time in her career. Certainly the first on hard courts. And look, Trevisan, who's made her bones at two, you know, two second week French Open runs over her career. Hard courts have never been the Martina Trevisan bread and butter. In fact, you look for Martina Trevisan overall in her career on hard courts at the WTA Tour level. And by the way, you look for Martina Trevisan just 25 and 24 overall over her last 52 weeks in general. She's 31 and 46 in her career at the Tour level on hard courts for her to reach the quarterfinals here in Miami. It's the first time she's done it at a hard court event, and I believe the first time she's done it, yeah, at a Masters 1000, excuse me, 1000 level event overall, though she'd make a round of 16 in Guadalajara to end last season. So now Guadalajara round of 16, Miami quarterfinal, Plus, of course, she's got that French Open, uh, what was it, quarterfinal run, I want to say, from the uh, from last season that she's got still on her run. No, semifinals, excuse me, on her season from last year. Now, she's got a bunch of points coming up. A Rabat title, Roland Garros semifinals, got a couple of clay court quarterfinals as well. It's going to be a busy stretch, but hey. Tell you what, you make the quarterfinals in Miami, you protect yourself at least a little bit. You look for Martina Trevisan up to a new career high, number 20 in the live rankings for the 29-year-old from Italy. That's extraordinarily impressive. She's certainly the biggest outlier, the player you'd least expect. Uh, Kirstea, given her quarterfinal run at Indian Wells, again, she's just sustained her level really well. But Trevisan is the, the unexpected player, I would say. And, you know, again, for what it's worth, you just feel like if Ostapenko couldn't over, you know, again, she just faced overwhelming pace in Ostapenko. If she can sustain that level, she's got a shot against Rabakina. The difference is the serve. I mean, the Rabakina serve is just a whole nother monster than the Ostapenko serve. And on this surface, on this court, that ball is going to get up on Trevisan so quickly. You understand why Tennis Abstract has Rabakina as a 91.1% favorite. I will say yesterday, remember my comparison, I, I said Potapova, her future is maybe Pagula with a little bit more athleticism. Well, they're going to face off head-to-head in the quarterfinals. Potapova from 4-1 down in the second set, exceptional in closing out a 6-4, 7-6 victory over Jung Chin Wen. Now, I did the long Potapova rant yesterday, so I won't repeat myself here today, but you look for Anastasia Potapova now to start 2023. She's 15-7 overall You know, into her third quarterfinal here of the year. God, it, yesterday was just... 
it was the athleticism, the ability to turn, you know, again, to return some of the, uh, first of all, Junction Wen played well, like was digging out of corners, was sliding into corners, was moving Potapova deep into her forehand corner. And yet Potapova's ability to take that ball just on the rise enough, shoulder level, drive through it on both the forehand backhand wing, her ability to beat Junction went to the spot down the line. And then again, the continued tenacity we saw, even when Junction went caught fire and played with some of that overwhelming pace that she's capable of producing, you know, Potapova was such a good returner, so good at taking the ball at shoulder level. She was able to short hop or take those balls at the baseline and just not give Jung Chin Wen as much time to have a clear-cut first strike opportunity. God, was Potapova exceptional. Pagula was equally good in her straight set win over Magda Lynette. She was up 5-0 in about 22 minutes and, you know, again, was down 5-2 in the second set, faces a set point, fights it off with a really good return at the body to set up a short ball put away. You know, she ultimately gets off the court in straight sense, one in five, only made 48% of her first serves and is definitely going to have to serve better against Potapova, who, like Lynette in the early portions of the second set, will be capable of punishing any ball that Pagula ultimately leaves short. But, I mean, oh my God. Like, I'm just telling you, that first set, Jessica Pagula's, I, t- I, I mentioned earlier in this season on this mini break podcast, the Iga Sviantek drill. I think Pagula's coaches made her institute this offseason where just for 15 minutes straight Pagula had to hit the ball as hard as humanly possible it didn't matter if she missed by 30 feet it was just building the instinct of hey go big down the line change direction assert yourself you know earn your uh, create a definitive and weapon that you can assert yourself with she did that I mean she was just giving Lynette the business down the line in those first five games everything she touched was just a ripped winner there was nothing Magda Lynette could do and look Lynette stepped inside the baseline took some time away from Pagula at the start of the second set but then Pagula found her rhythm again on the return Pagula's consistent enough fluid enough that she was able to weather that Lynette storm again and if you give Pagula a short ball, she can drive through your cross court. She can drive through you down the line now as well. Ugh, she was so good. I mean, she played top, tier one tennis in that first set against Lynette. And again, dug herself out of a 5-2 deficit to get off in straight sets. There's a lot of athleticism in that Pagula-Potapova matchup. And obviously, Pagula escaped with the 7-5 third set win over Potapova at Indian Wells just a week ago. So you're darn right I'm excited to watch the rematch on Wednesday for what it's worth. Tennis Abstract making Pagula a 78% favorite. Uh, Pagula is 3-0 in the career head-to-head ahead against Potapova. Other matchup I haven't talked about, ECAT with the uh, advancing over Bianca Andreescu, 7-6, love two. Now, unfortunately, Andreescu falling over with some sort of ankle injury right at that start of the second set was clearly in so much pain, had to get wheelchaired off the court. It's just devastating because she looked so fit. I talked about that earlier this week. The wins over Sakari, over Radakanu. She just finally seemed to have found her form and to have this injury emerge now. You just hope there's no long-term damage. You hope we can get her back on the court as soon as possible. All of us hoping for the best for Bianca and to rescue. Uh, Ekant, obviously, into the quarterfinals for what it's worth. Her live ranking currently one off her career high. She's sitting at 16. She wins another match. She'll be up to a new career high of number 14 in the live rankings. 
She's got a tough matchup, though. She's taking on Petra Kvitova. Kvitova weathering the athleticism of Gracheva. Five and six win for the powerful lefty Kvitova now. Again, into another quarterfinal here in Miami. Petra Kvitova in her career at this uh, Miami Open event has had a ton of success. You look for her overall, 22-12. and 12. She's reached at least the quarterfinal stage now four different times. Was in the quarterfinals last year where she got knocked out by Iga, so back-to-back quarterfinals here for Kvitova, who right now just quietly, very quietly, sitting at number 12 in the live rankings at 33 years old. Is she the oldest player inside the top 50? Kvitova, 33 She's a little younger than Azarenka, six months, a little younger than Jung Shui, uh, a little bit younger than no one else inside the top 50. Third oldest player inside the top 50 is Petra Kvitova. How is that the case? How old am I now? You know, again, I guess Kvitova has been, you know, again, she's the definition of a veteran. And to see the third oldest player still 12 in the ranking still, again, when she's asserting herself with her weapons, just has that ability to hit through anyone and her pace and the depth in particular, just with the big backswing Gracheva has on that forehand side. Gracheva too frequently left that ball short for Kvitova to attack, but it's a really good match. Six and five match. I mean, again, Gracheva was right there. She's certainly one of the biggest winners of the first third of the season. You look for Gracheva, 22 years old, currently sitting at a new career high, number 44 in the live rankings, right where she wants to be entering this clay court swing. But same, so is Kvitova, number 12 right now in the live rankings, has played really good tennis over the course of these last six months. That's where things stand. Coming out of Miami, and again, right now on the women's side, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast, uh, Rabakina, 32.6% favorite, Sabalenka, 319 Pagula, 18.8%, Kvitova, 126 Then you get a big drop heading into the quarterfinals. Meanwhile, on the men's side, again, Alcaraz, still your favorite, 17, uh, excuse me, Alcaraz not the favorite. Well, but that's not fair because some things have already happened here or seem to be happening on Monday. It just it's not fully updated, I should say, yet the tennis abstract formula. So I'm not willing to read too far into it, but obviously Carlos Alcaraz uh, is the pejorative favorite and the favorite according to odds makers. Yeah. That's where things stand. Coming out of my uh, my uh, Monday's Miami Open play, again, a very fun day of action. Highly implore any of you who haven't, go tune into the highlights, but be sure to tune in on Sunday, uh, on Tuesday, excuse me. My brain is going to work here down the home stretch. Alcaraz Paul, Fritz Runa, Sinner Rublev. I mean, even Rusevori. Uh, who's Rusevori play? I'm blanking on whom he plays, but... I'm always in on an Emil Rusevori match, especially when he's facing my birthday brother in Botik van der two days older than I am. I mean, that's just the men's matches. And I mean, again, it's all men's matches, I suppose, on the day. So you get all of those quarterfinals in action. We get the return of Daniil Medvedev to court. We get that Tsitsipas-Hachinov battle. You get a little bit of everything. Uh, Again, it's going to be a really fun day on the ATP side of things and maybe one of your better days on the calendar here in 2023. So we will be back to recap it all, whether it's Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Again, that depends. But a shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the... 
of an any job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their continued support. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.